0: On the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together before we look at this word. God, we thank you for this time and every time you speak, and uh, especially in such a very pointed way, and uh, we hear the repetition that you declare it, the Lord of hosts says it. Uh, We want to be attentive to hear. And uh, even in the book of Hebrews, it says that we should be careful to pay attention and to listen and to hear the one who is speaking. So even at this time, give us ears to hear. Uh, May your spirit uh, not only uh, allow us to see truth, but to uh, receive it, to experience it, to be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) You know, summers are always a little bit of a weird time because uh, I think as a church, we lose our rhythm. You know, people are always going on vacation. We have, like, these mission trips, and, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit time of a break. But I hope it's not, like, a spiritual break. It doesn't mean, like, we disconnect from uh, spiritual disciplines and seeking the Lord and following him and those kinds of things. But uh, it does mean things maybe me feel a little bit disjointed. Uh, I didn't preach for the last two weeks, and because of the prayer march, I will not be preaching next Sunday as well. And so what I thought is, um, you know, since everything's disjointed anyway, let me take a break from the book of Hebrews today and let me preach on something, not that I don't want to preach on the book of Hebrews, but let me me preach on something that uh, I really want to preach on uh, in terms of uh, what I feel is going on in my own heart and hopefully uh, your hearts as well. So we're going to take a break from the book of Hebrews and we're going to look at this passage in the book of Haggai, which, by the way is addressed to a discouraged people, just like the book of Hebrews. And uh, when you read the Bible, you start to realize that there are a lot of people in the Bible who go through seasons of discouragement. And if you're discouraged today by something, uh, it probably means you're in good company in terms of people in the Bible, because people in the Bible go through lots of seasons of discouragement. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we want to live and dwell in that season of discouragement because God always has a word for people who are discouraged and Satan always wants to use discouragement to uh, make us spiritually impotent. And so God gives a word to a discouraged people, these, uh, these people who were exiled from Jerusalem through this prophet Haggai. Now, I know some of these prophetic books, uh, especially if you've been in the church for a while. Um, maybe uh, you are not as familiar with. So I think it would help us to understand what's going on here. So let me give you a little bit of a context. You know, the reason why this community is discouraged is because they were living in exile. Uh, They have been kicked out of their their homes. This empire of Babylon came in, conquered the people of Israel, destroyed their temple, and forced people, the majority of people, out of Jerusalem. Uh, But we should also note why this exile happened. I think from a naturalistic point of view, uh, if this were reported in the news, the typical explanations we would think is this exile happened because uh, Babylon was just politically stronger or economically stronger or militarily stronger. Uh, Maybe Babylon had more advanced technology, and that's why Israel failed. But the interesting thing about the Bible and how God sees it and how God explains why this traumatic event happened to the people of Israel is very simple. It's a spiritual reason. They worshipped false idols and they refused to turn from their evil ways and therefore God sent them into exile. Now after many years of living in exile, this new empire emerges, replaces Babylon. It's the Persian Empire. And what God does through the Persian empire, especially the king of the Persian empire, King Cyrus, is he stirs his heart to make a declaration to allow the people of Israel, these exiles, to now come and return to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild their temple. And that's an exciting development especially if you're somebody who hasn't been home for a long time but at the same time there are these a ton of obstacles that they face and there's a lot of opposition which makes this work discouraging and so they start this rebuilding project but in the midst of that in view of this opposition they get discouraged and eventually they stop working on rebuilding this temple and they give up and this is where the prophet Haggai comes in and gives this prophetic word to challenge the people and to encourage them to go and to rebuild this temple. That's the context. Now, let me talk about discouragement for a minute. Uh, if you think about it, discouragement is uh, such a powerful force, isn't it? Discouragement, I think, comes to us in every season of life, and it comes to us for a variety of reasons. Uh, if you are a believer, and if you are the, a believer who is somewhat invested in the ministry of the church, I guarantee you, uh, You've probably already been discouraged, and I guarantee you, you'll be discouraged in the future. Uh, For us, I think as a small church in New York City, uh, I think collectively we probably go through seasons of discouragement on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, We probably get discouraged when people leave and move away and those kinds of things. We get discouraged when it doesn't seem like there's just enough people to serve. We get discouraged when we don't see spiritual fruit after investing so much of our time and energy and love. We get discouraged when it seems like people, people who claim to be believers, seem so apathetic to the gospel. We get discouraged when there's conflict. We get discouraged when other people are discouraged. There's a a number of reasons why we can get discouraged. And when we get into that season of discouragement, uh, the main temptation, I think, is is to give up, right? That's why Satan wants to use it. A couple weeks ago, some of you know, I was in California. The reason I was in California is because I'm enrolled in, a, in school. And uh, you know what, what I love about this experience of going to school is I get to interact with uh, these ministry leaders from all over the country in a variety of contexts that I wouldn't normally have interacted with. And you know what? Even in that classroom of like 20-something people, there's a lot of discouragement there as well. Uh, One person was like really discouraged and like literally shouting and crying in tears about how it seems like churches are so apathetic to what's going on in the border. Uh, Another person is just discouraged because uh, they're saying, you know, uh, new churches, they only seem to be planted in these um, middle to affluent neighborhoods or gentrifying neighborhoods. And nobody's coming to like the poor neighborhoods where I'm from, the black neighborhoods, the Latino neighborhoods, and planting these new churches. And that's discouraging. Uh, I was talking to this one friend in ministry, and you know his his church is actually growing, but he's discouraged because in the midst of that growth, a lot of people are complaining, and they're complaining about him in particular, and they're unhappy about him. Uh, you know, if you look outside of the U.S. context too tons of reasons to be discouraged. I imagine there are believers in China who are discouraged when churches are shut down, when missionaries are being deported, when various leaders of uh, various ministries maybe fall into some kind of uh, moral scandal, when uh, buildings get destroyed. Discouragement is everywhere. And if you are a believer and if you are serious about doing the work of God and engaging in the work of God, it's inevitable. Discouragement's going to come, right? It's going to come. Discouragement is powerful because what it does is it makes you frustrated, and in that frustration, it can easily turn into hopelessness. It's kind of like trying to climb a mountain only to fall over and over and over and over again. And uh, you're looking at the top of a mountain, you're like, I need to get to that mountain. But there's this one part that's really difficult and you just can't get over it. And after about 100 times falling, you start to lose hope and you start to say, I'll never get to the top of this mountain. And therefore, the temptation is to just give up. Discouragement, it takes away your joy. Without joy, uh, I think we start to do things a little bit half-heartedly. Eventually, what happens when we do things half-heartedly and we don't have joy and things seem very uh, impossible to do is you just start to give up altogether. And isn't that when Satan wins? Isn't that what Satan wants when it comes to the ministry of the church? Isn't that why discouragement is such a powerful weapon? Uh, Now, I couldn't find the book uh, by C.S. Lewis where um, uh, screw tape letters I couldn't find that book in my house, but uh, if I recall, there is this powerful section uh, where C.S. Lewis writes about discouragement, and uh, you have, like, the senior uh, demon, right, saying to the junior demons, like, make sure you use discouragement uh, to bring this believer down. Uh, Discouragement is just so prevalent, and it's so powerful, and when we're in that season, um, it's important to... Uh, not know how to get ourselves out of it because we don't but it's really important to hear what god has to say in those seasons of discouragement and that's exactly what these exiles were tempted to do because they were discouraged right look at verse three it says uh who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory how do you see it now is it not as nothing in your eyes you know what he's talking about he's saying you you guys remember there's some of you in this community you remember how glorious this temple was you remember the good old days How do you see it now it's rubble right and it seems like such a difficult thing to rebuild you probably remember when this uh how this temple was built under the reign of king solomon when the kingdom of israel was at its peak when they had ton of wealth and now you're probably thinking well you're a defeated people you are an exiled people you have no power you have no money you have no wealth how is it going to be possible to even rebuild this temple and so of course people who know the glory days They're going to be discouraged, right? And to these people, God has a few words to them. He has a few words to them that are important to hear. The first thing he says is this be strong. In verse 4, he says, you now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the first person in charge of the rebuilding project. Then he says, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Joshua is a high priest. Then he says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He's telling them to be strong. The second thing he tells them is work, right? Work. He's not talking about working in your uh, normal jobs and your normal vocations. He's talking about the work of rebuilding this temple. Even though you're discouraged, don't stop working. Work. And third, he says at the end of verse 5, fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Why? Because there's a lot of risk in rebuilding this temple. Of course, there's a lot of good reasons to be afraid. You have to sacrifice a lot of human resources, a lot of your time, a lot of your money. Some of you may have to leave your jobs and leave your families to go to Jerusalem and to rebuild this temple. Of course, there's a lot of risk in engaging in this project. There's a lot of reasons to worry. But God says, fear not. Now, these three things that God says, be strong, work, and fear not. When you are in a season of discouragement, aren't those things hard to do, right? Discouragement makes you feel weak. You don't want to work when you're discouraged, and you easily give in to fear when you are discouraged but you see that's why we have to pay attention to some of the other things that God says here because those are the things that are going to help them be strong to work and to not be afraid in the midst of their discouragement so what are the other things that God says here first he says this I am with you I am with you my spirit remains in your midst Now, for a Jewish person who is familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, I do think that they would probably understand the importance of God's presence. Whenever God tells his people not to be afraid, it's usually accompanied by this statement that says, I am with you, I will be with you. The Israelites, they are often afraid because they are in situations where they should be afraid because they could legitimately die. In the wilderness generation, they're afraid because they send these spies out to the land of Canaan. These cities are fortified. The people are big, and and they're strong. And they're saying, oh, if we go and try to take this land, of course, we're going to die. We're afraid. And God says, don't be afraid. Why? Not because you're strong, not because you're powerful. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. To Joshua, what does he say when he has to succeed Moses and lead these nomadic people into battle against the Canaanites? God says, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. When God's presence is with his people, even if the odds are stacked against them, they were strong because of God's presence. Presence is, I think, an interesting concept, and uh, I'm not sure I've fully wrapped my head around it, but I think the one thing I know for sure is presence is something that is important. And my guess is maybe we underestimate the importance of presence in general, even human presence. You know, I'm sure uh, some of you, especially some of you with, like, young kids, and it's, like, a struggle to even get to church, and when you get to church, you can't pay attention, and you can't talk to anybody. I'm sure your temptation is, uh, what does it matter to come to church today? I don't even hear anything. I don't even get to talk to anybody. uh, I don't even uh, get to hear the sermon, right? All these things. And the temptation is, like, you know, I don't even contribute so what's the point, right? That's, I think, underestimating presence. Uh, probably some of you are here and you're like, yeah, I, I don't like praying out loud, so what's the point of going to a prayer meeting? I'm going to go and I'm just going to be quiet and I'm just going to sit there uh, and I'm not going to pray out loud, so uh, what's the point of going? You know I, know, I know people are probably more likely to go to something, to a meeting or to an event if they are playing a very active part in it. And I think uh, all of these things are a signal that I think we underestimate the importance of presence, that it's not always what we do, but sometimes it's just important to show up because presence matters. You know how I I know? Uh, I know it's summer, right? And uh, a lot of your bosses, maybe they're away on vacation, maybe they're in the Hamptons or something. And uh, ask yourself, does their lack of presence affect how you work? Probably, right? When your boss is present, do you work a little bit harder? Probably, because presence matters. Maybe some of you are the boss, right? And you're like, oh, I gotta go into the office today. Why? Well, because the people who work for me, they're not as productive when I'm not there, so I just gotta go and show myself. So people work harder. Presence is important. When you have a child who's in a new surrounding, whether it's maybe in a hospital, maybe in a new school, maybe it's even here at church, in a new church setting, they often look for their parent. They wanna know, is, there, is my parent with me? Why? Because presence matters, right? Don't underestimate the importance of presence because presence makes a difference. In this passage, God is saying he is with them. He's present, that his spirit remains in their midst. God is saying that he is present with his people, and that's a meaningful thing, friends. That's a truly meaningful thing that he says that. If they recalled all the things that God did for Israel when his presence was with them, they should be greatly encouraged by that. We are talking about the Lord of hosts here. We are talking about the one who took a weak, nomadic wilderness people and defeated the Canaanites. We are talking about the one who gave victory to King Hezekiah over the king of Assyria, even though Hezekiah's army was greatly outnumbered. This God is a one who says, I will be with you. And when the Lord of hosts who has infinite power is with you, you have every reason to be strong and to not be afraid because his presence is there. Now, the second thing God promises in his word of promise is, uh, is also, I think, related to presence. But he says it in verses 7 to 9. And he says this. He says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory. And then he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give peace. Three things he promises here. He promises a shaking, a filling, and a giving. I will shake, I will fill, and I will give. Uh, If you're an East Coaster, uh, you don't experience many earthquakes. I'm an East Coaster, so I don't experience many earthquakes, but we were in California a couple weeks ago, and uh, there was a pretty large earthquake uh, that we felt, and you know, we, my wife and I, we were just, like, sitting on the bed, and, right, the bed starts to shake, and my wife goes, are you shaking the bed? I'm like, no, I'm not shaking the bed. And then I look at the door, and the door is just, like, swinging, right? I'm like, I think it's an earthquake. <laughs> I think the ground is shaking. If you're from the West Coast, you're like, yeah, that happens all the time. But as an East Coaster, I was like, whoa, this is an earthquake. This is such a weird feeling. The, the whole, right, the whole house is just, like, shaking. Uh, you know, earthquakes... Right, if you're not desensitized to what it feels like, being in an earthquake is a very humbling experience. I'll tell you why it's humbling. Uh, you feel very vulnerable because you are completely powerless to do anything about it, right? You can't stop it. The best thing you can do is you just got to wait it out. Nothing can stop an earthquake, and you just got to wait for it to finish. That is a humbling feeling because what that means is you are at the mercy of something that is more powerful than you. Uh, in the Old Testament, whenever there's an instance of God's presence, where God shows up in a very particular and special way, a lot of times it's accompanied by shaking, right? There's this earthquake. Uh, we're going to look at this in Hebrews 12. When we get to Hebrews 12, the author actually talks about this. And uh, coincidentally, he quotes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. But he says, right, don't refuse to hear the one who is speaking because uh, there was a time when his voice shook the earth. What would you do to a person if the earth shook? What would it do to a person if the earth shook every time God showed up and spoke? How would you feel, right? If you read Exodus 19, uh, you get a sense of how maybe Israel felt when they were about to approach the mountain and the mountain shook. You know what they felt? Terror. (laughs) Terror. They were terrified. Why? Well, first, they recognized the kind of power that God has, that even at his voice, even at his very presence, even just by showing up, the entire earth shakes. But the second thing they knew is this. They have no business being in the presence of a holy God. They knew that they were flawed. They knew that they were unworthy. And therefore, that shaking serves also as a sign of judgment for them, that you're not worthy to be in my presence. But you see, God also gives two other promises here, He promises a filling and a giving he promises to fill the temple with glory and then he promises to give peace how is he going to do these things well ironically he would do it by shaking the earth once more but for different uh under different circumstances you know what's interesting after jesus is crucified if you read the gospel narratives the synoptic gospel narratives um, one of the things that it notes is the earth shook and the rocks were split right after jesus cries out and yields his last breath it says the earth shook and the rocks were split why would why would it say that why would it include that what does that mean i think it means this that when jesus died on the cross god's judgment fell entirely on him You remember uh, that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and his soul is anguished. Jesus himself is shaken by what he is about to face. You know why he's shaken? Uh, It's not necessarily because of the physical pain of the crucifixion, but he's anticipating the fact that he would have to bear the full weight of judgment upon himself on account of our sin, on account of you and I. Think about how terrified the people of Israel were in Exodus 19 for merely coming near the mountain of God, coming near the presence of God. How much more terrifying would it be to know that you are going to come before the full presence of God, bearing the full weight of the sin of the world? That's why Jesus is shaken. But Jesus did it. He endured it. He went through it. Why? because he loved us. That was his mission. That's how he became our savior. That's why we can have peace. That's why we can experience the glory of God in his presence. The earth shook that one last time. And Hebrews will say, therefore, now we have an unshakable kingdom. Now we can't be shaken because the earth shook when Jesus Christ died. Uh, This past week, I saw this new documentary, uh, and it, really made, it made me really scared, to be, t- <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, this documentary is called I Love You, Now Die. And it's about the case of, of a teenage girl who uh, encouraged her uh, depressed suicidal boyfriend to carry out his own suicide via text message. And as a result of that, she was charged by the law with involuntary manslaughter and uh, ultimately she was found guilty. I think uh, her attorneys are uh, appealing it, but uh, at least for now, she's been declared guilty of involuntary manslaughter for doing that. Now, it's a complicated case on many levels, and I'm sure legally it's a a very fascinating, complicated case to, to study, but I'll tell you why it made me afraid. It made me afraid because it gave me insight into the kind of world that I think young people inhabit now, that teenagers inhabit now. Uh, I I think growing up in a digital age is going to form people's social habits um, very differently than previous generations. If you have relationship primarily through text messaging, I think that's going to do something to how we relate to people. Uh, You're going to miss some of the things that you would get through physical human interactions. My wife, uh, a couple of years ago, she showed me this article about a group of high school girls and they didn't want one of the girls in their group to sit with them anymore, so instead of saying, hey, can you not sit with us anymore, they send a text, right? They text this girl and they say, hi, we took a vote, we decided we don't want you to sit with us anymore, so if you could not sit with us, that would be great. Send. Uh, Now, here's why that scares me. You know, there's a difference between saying that over text and saying that in person, because when you say it over text, you don't see the consequences of your words. You don't see maybe the pain that you cause the other person. You don't see how harsh your words can be. You don't see how it's received. When you send a text, it it just gets sent into the air, and you don't really uh, maybe fully understand the full consequences of what you're saying or doing. Now, I'm not saying that that would stop them from saying something harsh, but I think at the very least, it allows you to see your words matter what you say matters, and it has consequences. And when you do it over text, I think it's easy to be oblivious to the consequences of those words. So related to this documentary, someone in this documentary is making the observation saying that when this teenage girl is telling this teenage boy to kill himself, right, and it was a relationship primarily through text, it wasn't a relationship where they were physically together, she probably didn't fully think about the consequences and what those things would how that would manifest in real life in terms of the pain that it would cause. It probably would've been different if she was physically with this boy and said, uh, end your life, and if she's seeing him actually end his life, uh, I imagine that would have a very different effect. But here's the thing why, why people would opt to send a text, and you know, I'm sure some people here did this too. When you, If you break up with somebody, it's easier to send a text and break up with them instead of call them or meet them face to face. Why do people do that? Because it spares you from that pain, right? It spares you from the consequences of having to be present. You know what makes God so different in his treatment towards us? He doesn't try to spare himself from our pain. In the person of Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, he lives in it. He encounters it. He identifies with it. And ultimately, he bears it upon himself. Rather than being partially present by sending a text, you know what God does in the person of Jesus? He becomes fully present so that he might bear our sin and our pain. That's the kind of love that we probably long for, but that's the kind of love that we ultimately need. You see, after Jesus' death, the gospel writers also tell us something important the curtain temple is torn in two. What does that mean? That's a way of saying that the presence of God, which was once terrifying, which was once limited and restricted within the holiest place of the temple, that presence of God is now unleashed. Unleashed. We get to be with God because God can be present with us in a way that he couldn't be prior to the work of Jesus Christ. And that fully comes, manifests itself on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes And what does the Holy Spirit do? Dwells within a new temple. But this temple is not built by human hands. This new temple is the church, the people of God. And the Spirit of God now dwells in the midst of the church. Uh, Let me end by doing this. Uh, I wanted to connect this to the prayer march that a few of us will be going on. Uh, If you don't understand what we're doing, um, I think you're in good company. It's a little bit hard to explain and describe why we are going to these cities to uh, pray and to worship in these cities and with these cities. Uh, What is the significance of going to these places to worship and to pray? Uh, Quite honestly, it would probably sound better and be easier to explain if we said we're going to go to these places and build some orphanages and do some medical work. Um, But here's the theology of why we're doing this and why we're going to on a prayer march to places, cities in Greece and Turkey. At the end of the day, the work of ministry is a spiritual work, which means it requires the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think many of us may know this in our heads, but I don't think we truly know it deep down because uh, we, take, uh, we think it's about what we do and uh, what we think about and how hard we work and those kinds of things. Look, the ministry, right, at its core is a spiritual work, right? Which means we need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why are we going to these cities? What we are hoping is that as the people of God join together to worship and to pray in these cities, the Spirit will come and will start doing a powerful spiritual work in these cities and bless these cities. That's it. And you see, if God inhabits the praise of his people, then he inhabits the places where his people bring praise. And that's our hope. And here's a beautiful thing, thing about it. Um, none of us who go can really claim credit for anything, right? It's going to be wholly the work of God. Uh, if ministries come afterwards, and ministries start to flourish, right? Uh, right? None of us can say we, we did anything, But we can fully give credit to the Spirit of God and say it's because the Spirit of God is there. I do ask you to pray for us who will be going, but I also want you to consider this as people who dwell in uh, New York City. If we are the church, uh, it's an indicative statement we are the temple of God as well. What does it mean to dwell as the church in the city? How will the Spirit of God come and do a powerful work in this city? And how will he do it where nobody gets credit for it? No pastor gets credit for it. No church gets credit for it. Uh, I think it happens when the people of God come together to worship and to pray, right, across churches, across denominations, um, but just seeking Spirit, come manifest your presence here. We are the temple. We want to be a place fit for you therefore, let us worship, let us praise you, and may your spirit come. And I think that's how ministry becomes fruitful. That's healthier ministry too, right? Because we all have egos, we all have pride, we all want to say, look what I did, look what I did, look what we did. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's all that matters, that the spirit dwells in these places. And that's where we'll see flourishing. That's when we'll see fruit. That's when we'll see the glory that fills his house. That's when we will experience the kind of peace, shalom in the Hebrew word, this kind of peace that God promises here. Um, You know, the next series I'm going to preach after Hebrews is going to be a series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think some of us are maybe a little bit uncomfortable Um, with that topic, but I think that's okay. Uh, I think if you're just open. Uh, We worship a triune God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes I feel like we don't um, know the Spirit enough. Uh, But I think that's going to be key to not just personal and individual flourishing, um, not just good news flourishing, but where we dwell in New York City, which I think is something that uh, hopefully we all long for. Let's pray together.